these Bibles and open it up to page 692. 692. It's Isaiah chapter 44. We will we'll read that in a moment, and I'll pray in a moment. Uh, but I wonder, just off the gate, if you've had one of these experiences before. You got to a uh, final round interview of your dream job, and it didn't go so well, so you didn't get the job. But you weren't just disappointed by that experience of uh, not getting your job, but actually, you, you were crushed by that failure. But what it says about your value, about your worth, or let's just say you did get the job, and actually you thought, well, this is my dream job. Life is now sorted for me. This is, this is incredible. I wonder if you think that if you had just a bit more money, then all your problems in life would be sorted. Or maybe you can think of a time where you got ill, actually quite seriously ill, and it wasn't just the, necessarily the pain of the illness that was really quite difficult for you to, to deal with and was hard, as of course it was, but actually, it just felt so unjust. And, and you're saying things like, why me? I, I don't deserve this. Why is my life difficult? Longing for a comfortable life. Maybe you sometimes find yourself daydreaming about that next home you would like to live in. And as you, as you kind of picture life in, in the next home, it's just kind of, it's rosy and it's perfect. You can't imagine anything wrong with life if you had that home. It just, everything just looks so good. Perhaps like me, you've had the experience where you actually just feel pretty depressed and pretty moody when your sports team loses. It really like just really kind of dampens you in a way that's quite worrying. <laughs> Why can life be like that? Why can those experiences happen? Why do we respond like that? It sounds like a real random range of things. Hopefully today we'll see how actually those things are all quite connected. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and in a moment we'll read from Isaiah 44 uh, and think about all that has to say to us. Let's pray. Everlasting God, we, uh, we acknowledge what we've sung, perhaps without even thinking it, that you alone are God, that you are the unchanging God. And we are people, we are people who get things wrong, who make mistakes and who are weak. And so, God, we pray that you would be gracious and kind to us, that you would uh, speak to us this afternoon, that we would hear your voice and that you would show us reality. You would show us life as it is. You'd show us ourselves as we are. And we pray that you would show us uh, your son, Jesus, who shows us you, that we may, we may know you, that we may love you more. We pray. Amen. So I'm going to read from uh, Isaiah 44, verse 6, under the heading, The Lord, Not Idols. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. 
Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People like that will be put to shame. Skilled workers are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They'll be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form. Human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak, he let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I even roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such people feed on ashes. A deluded heart misleads them. They cannot save themselves. Or say, is not this, right, this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offences like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath, burst into song, you mountains you forests and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. And you may well be thinking, what relevance does that have, this story of this ancient statue idolatry to the questions we asked at the beginning and to our lives today? Well, what we need to see is that idols are not just this ancient religious issue. Actually, they're a very modern and very British issue too. So um, let's see that as, as we go together. And... The first thing uh, we will see, hopefully, is that uh, we pursue idols. If you can get it going, Nathan, that'd be great. Now, we pursue idols. <coughs> Let me explain, because there's not, it's not likely that many of us have at home this, uh, this shrine with a statue in that we'll go home tonight and we will uh, bow down and worship. Although it is true that thousands in Birmingham, yeah, you do need to know, thousands of people in Birmingham probably do have that and probably do do something like that. But pursuing idols is the human condition. John Calvin said that the, the, the heart is an idol factory. We're always creating idols in our hearts. 
And, and this thing of idols, idolatry, is all about what we love and worship. So we read here in Isaiah 44, uh, the, the people work hard at making this statue, and it's not a statue to put on the, the mantelpiece and kind of decorate the home and to look nice. No, they, they've invested it with much more significance than that. If you look at, at verse 17, uh, he makes a god his idol. He, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. In verse 9, we see actually it's, it's about what we treasure about, about what we delight in, about what we love in our hearts. You see, idolatry is taking something ordinary, taking something created, whether it's a little piece of paper you make into a man or anything else that's created, and we look to that thing and in that place for the deepest longings and, uh, of, of our hearts, for our security, our identity, our, our satisfaction, our inner peace, our purpose, our hope, our joy. We're looking for salvation in these things. And so you could say uh, idolatry is like good things becoming God things. We worship them because we, we give ourselves to them. We, we, we sacrifice for them. They take this central place in our life and so God gets pushed to the periphery. If that's what idolatry is, is as the Bible presents it and that's very, very relevant to our lives today and to our culture today. And as we pursue idols, we need to see the reason for that is because of, if you like, two spheres in which uh, idolatry exists, which we, we kind of interact with at the same time. And these help us understand why we pursue idols. The first one is culture, the world around us. Back in Isaiah 44, remember the context is this. Uh, we saw it just before Christmas, and uh, it, it was where we got up to in Isaiah. God's people are no longer in, in their homeland of, of around Jerusalem and Judah, but they've been taken a thousand miles away to Babylon. They're in exile. They're kind of like these, these uh, they're kind of locked up uh, in this foreign country, in a foreign land. And so they're in the midst of this foreign culture, this whole uh, approach to the world around them that is different. The, the great and mighty empire of Babylon, with these massive statues to these gods. I think I've got a picture of this one of the statues of, of the gods of Babylon. This whole elaborate cultural and religious system that, that kind of is shot right through Babylonian life. It's kind of like the background music that is just everywhere. And it was just assumed that you would just go along with the Babylonian ways of doing things, the, the clothing, the food, the education, the activities. It, it was everywhere. And, and there was actually this, in this little Jewish community, kind of amongst this Babylonian society, there was this real pressure on them, actually, even enforced by the laws of the land and this kind of kind of intelligence agency, secret police type organization who kind of went about enforcing it with the death penalty standing behind it. Laws that prohibited praying to your gods. You could only pray to the gods of Babylon. Laws that required you to bow down to their statues. And if you didn't, you would die. There's this culture for them that's inviting and even pressurizing them pressurizing God's people to treat things that are not God as if they are God. I wonder if you've ever just stopped and thought about the values and the messages of the culture that we live in, of the cultural air that we just breathe day by day without even thinking about it. If you like the background music of our lives and our adverts and our music and our TV, radio and elsewhere. Let me ask you a couple of questions, and it, I'd love it if people could 
share a few, few responses. Where do you think in our culture we are encouraged and expected to look for this salvation of the good life? What does our culture tell us that is worth sacrificing everything to grab hold of? What are your thoughts? What, what we told is, where's the good life and, and what should we sacrifice everything for? Winning X Factor, which is itself is a shot at fame and, yeah, other things, yep. Wealth. Sorry? Wealth. Wealth, money, riches, yep. Children, Children okay, yeah. Soulmate, yes, there's kind of relationships and romantic, yeah. Career, yeah. Reputation, it's kind of a different form of fame, kind of having influence. I think on the soulmate thing, sex is, is everywhere, isn't it? And kind of fulfillment in sex and sexual relationships. This stuff is, is, is the background music of our culture. It, we're receiving these messages every day of this stuff. Money, sex, success, life being in great experiences and, 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 and things like that. And our culture says to us, it's natural. You, it's just assumed that you would, you would do everything to achieve and pursue and take hold of these things when you can. And if you don't have them, in some ways, even suggests you're kind of subhuman or you're not living a full human experience. Here's one little example which I find uh, quite interesting. Uh, does anyone know what these are? Mm, I think they're, they're jeans, yeah. Now, um, they're a particular type of jeans, actually, you can get in Gap, and they're called girlfriend jeans. And the thing is, it's remarkable that a piece of clothing is marketed by a relationship status, as if only if you're kind of a girlfriend could you buy these jeans and wear them and, and you know, be valuable enough to wear these things. I mean, what is, that, what is that just subtly saying to us about what is valuable, what is good, where, where the good life is, what we should be living for? I mean, there's just examples of this stuff all over the place for us. It's not just the background music, because there's also this kind of pressure on us to go with this, the relentless advertising, the relentless marketing and messages telling us our life is rubbish without the products they're trying to sell. Sex is everywhere. It's just teaching us a message about the place it ought to have in our lives. You know, some of us might have cultural heritage and backgrounds that, that we bring to the UK that actually, where there's a, a huge in, um, pressure to get involved in things like shrine, where, um, you know, worshipping at shrines or, or kind of animism or whatever, where we kind of deify certain things. There'll be lots of that in the UK as well. And so we, we live in this culture that, 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 that invites and pressurizes us towards pursuing idols. Actually makes it very hard not to. But it's not just culture. That's the first sphere. The other sphere that kind of overlays on top of culture is our own hearts because if we're honest, the problem isn't just out there, but it's also in the core of who we are. And this is another sphere, if you like, that's pulling us towards idols. For Israel in Isaiah 44, I guess God wasn't looking like quite such a uh, safe bet anymore. He, his promises looked dead in the water, and I, and I guess God seemed dead in the water. Here they are in Babylon, defeated, the gods of Babylon looking impressive and mighty around them. And so, the tug on their hearts, there's this alluring promise of just settling into Babylon life. Why don't you just kind of settle into what's around you? Take on the cultures, 
take on the idols, do okay, just keep your nose clean, get ahead. You get social acceptance, you can have a, a bit of inner peace in your context, you can avoid getting killed, which is a win, isn't it? Can't you see the, the kind of the pull of that on, on the heart of, of, of those Israelites? Well, I think for us it's, it's similarly alluring. I mean, aren't you drawn to what's, what, what is kind of on offer out there? Kind of look out at your friends and say, well, it seems to work for them, so, so why, why not? Let's just get used to where we're at and just make, them, make, make the most of it. You know, the promises that the idols offer to us seem so believable and so, yeah, just kind of, they just draw us to them. They think, yeah, okay, it's worth it for the career. I, I, I make every sacrifice now to get the career, to show my worth and value, and then, and then I'll be someone in the world. It, it just seems so worth it. Or just those amazing experiences we might get from, from travel or from just having a great and comfortable life, just the, the joy that we can have in that, or, or money that gets you stuff and, and just feels great. These things seem to so... I guess, connect with and answer the longings of our hearts. It seems so natural to pursue them. And of course, we don't, we don't say, we don't call them God and kind of bow down to them and literally get on our knees before them. But the key is what we do do is we look to them for what only God provides. We look to these things for our sense of value or our sense of joy or, or, or our sense of purpose in life. So they become our idols and we love them. Isn't, isn't this us? Isn't, isn't this what it's like to be us? I think whatever our religious beliefs, whatever our religious background, this is what we are doing. We, we live in these two spheres, cultures pressuring us, drawing us towards certain idols. Our hearts are taking us that same way. Very often it's in hidden and subtle ways. But we do. We pursue idols. But here's the thing. It's a difficult thing. We pursue idols, but idols ultimately disappoint us. Isaiah 44 is just so clear. They just promise so much and they deliver so little. I mean, I, I hope you kind of heard the satire and the kind of comedic mocking as, as we read through the chapter. It's laughable how stupid this, this ancient pagan uh, idolat- statue idolatry sounds. If, if you look back at verse 12 uh, to 14, you, you kind of see Isaiah's peeling back the layers of the idol-making process. And he's, just, he's like showing us the real character of idolatry and how futile it is talks about the blacksmith using the tools and hammers to make the, the, the covering, the metal covering. He's exhausting himself in the cause. He gets hungry and he loses his strength. He grows faint. Before that, the carpenters measured out and shaped the wooden statue using his tools and his school skills. Before that, the tree's been cut down by men, which before that was planted and grown in the forest as it was rained on. Who is totally passive throughout that whole process? The idol, the God, is absolutely passive. Wholly reliant at every single point on external sources. Wholly reliant on the strength, the tools, the industry, the creativity of humans. This is a God with no life outside of what humans give to it. And so verse 13 really gets us to the heart of of the problem with idolatry. And it's the key thing about idols. They are made in our form. They are in our glory. This is us creatures on a search for God, looking for God and blessings with him. And it's shaped by us and not God. It's in our likeness. 
we're looking for these eternal realities and we do nothing more than just mirror ourselves. And that's a very real problem for us. 15 to 17, verses 15 to 17, the, the mockery continues as, as Isaiah writes about how the very same stuff used to make the idol, this supposed great God that you'll bow down to, that you'll worship, that you pray to. This same wood you also used to cook your dinner and, and make a campfire that you sit by and warm yourself on on a camp night. It's kind of ridiculous. It's incredulous. How, how can something that you, 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 know, you cook your, your beef stew or your jerk chicken or whatever on, how could that be a God? Seriously. How can something just so plainly ordinary actually deliver something so supernatural and so wonderful? Well, we fill things up with a whole load more meaning than they can possibly contain. I guess we we read it here and it's easy for us to mock, isn't it? This kind of statue-making idolatry. Of course a wooden statue with a bit of metal on it isn't a god. But I guess the question for us is, are our idolatry any less ridiculous? Because we go and we exhaust ourselves, we make these great sacrifices ourselves pursuing idols. We might go and gamble all our money, wasting time and money and, and, and putting at risk all sorts of things just to get more money. We might speed through relationship after relationship just looking for fulfillment in romantic relationship. We might make just extreme sacrifices for the sake of our career. We're looking for, for, for something kind of transcendent in the ordinary. It's, it just seems kind of silly. Or maybe, I don't know, clothing. You, you, we, we hope that some kind of new piece of cotton or denim that we buy in the shop to put on our body is somehow going to give us some kind of inner peace and, and, and comfort with who we are and what others think of us. And, and we have this new image that's suddenly going to like sort our lives out. All from some piece of cotton that grew in a field that was probably made by some someone far poorer than us in another part of the world. Aren't we just putting too much hope and expectation on clothes and other things? Perhaps in our superstition we rely on a little lucky charm or, or some kind of statue of a Hindu god or, or a statue of Mary or something to protect us or provide safe travels in our car or help us to prosper. You know, when we think about our idolatry, we're not all that different to what we read in Isaiah 44, are we? I know we don't use religious language to talk about this sort of stuff all the time. And perhaps sometimes it's subtler than kind of bowing down to a statue. But make no mistake about it, these are idols. And we make the sacrifices that worshippers make for these idols. And we are seeking salvation from them. That is exactly what is going on. And so we need to hear from Isaiah 44 what absolute folly idolatry is, how worthless they are, how futile it is relying on them. And we read from verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind, they are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People like that will be put to shame. Skilled workers are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They'll be brought down to terror and shame. And then verse 18. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I, I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? 
should I bow down to a block of wood? Listen to this. Such people feed on ashes. A deluded heart misleads them. It's exactly where idolatry lands us. It leaves us feeding on ashes. We're drawn to these, these be- this thing that looks beautiful, it looks life-giving, it looks like it can give us some salvation, something that we, we so want and desire and need, like this tasty food, this dinner that's going to so delight us. As we consume it, as we pursue it, it's just, it's just like ashes in our mouth. And, and we want to spew it out, and yet we're somehow kind of addicted to it. And It's a detestable thing, Isaiah says, a detestable thing. Getting personal isn't this you? I wonder if you could think uh, in your life where something has turned to ash in your mouth, if you like. Now that, that's a hard situation. It's kind of those questions at the beginning where we have hopes for something and, and, and they disappoint. It's a hard situation. But there's just something wonderful about the situation because it's an opportunity for a moment of insight. That is the time where you like the layers appealed back to us. And we see that actually we were loading up a whole load of expectation in something that it just can't give us. Maybe we see my career has become more to me than a job. Maybe where we're crushed by the loss of a certain relationship because we see that all our hopes were invested in that person. Maybe my extreme and soul-eating worry about my child shows a misplaced hope and that I've just got too much expectation hope in my children. Or, or my concern for my reputation has become so kind of such an insatiable craving to be liked and respected by all the people all the time that the, the slightest criticism just destroys me knocks, me, knocks me off balance for days. Maybe I just see that I've invested too much hope and expectation in a game of sport. See, idolatry is when good things become God things, but then they become bad things because you made them God, and so they disappoint us. That's what idolatry is. And it's ludicrous. The truth is, we all do it. And Isaiah says, stop and think. Stop and think. See the idolatry around you. See the idolatry within you. If you can't, ask God to help you see it. Stop and think. The good news in Isaiah 44 is he doesn't just expose the problem, but he prescribes the medicine we need. And here's the wonderful truth. Yeah, we pursue idols, and they disappoint us, and yet God alone pursues us. This is how we escape this, if you like, this vicious kind of downward spiral of leaning on idols and then crumpling under the weight of our expectation. Let me read from verse 6 about this God who pursues us. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. You see, God is better. God is better. He is beyond compare. He is unique. It's like comparing that little 
paper man to God is just no comparison. Whatever you might go looking for, whatever I might go looking for in idols, God has in spades. And so while we see in Isaiah 44 that idols are just kind of passive and worthless, God is active, he is sovereign, he is powerful. And we see it later on in verses 21 and 22. He's active creating his people, creating people in his image, actually making them, but also recreating or redeeming them in his image. So it's like we're doubly his. It says we're, we're his servant, those who he will not forget, those in whom his image is being formed. So God knows we are idol worshippers and yet he pursues us. And so we are his treasure and his prize, those who he will not let go. Verse 22 says, swept away your offences like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. These idols are passive and worthless and yet God has got busy and active working to provide for us everything we need everything we could hope for everything we could possibly look for in an idol God does that in Jesus his son he is the one in whom God pursues us Jesus is the one who has swept away our sins and our offenses he's the one who never looked to an idol for hope or satisfaction or life or joy and yet he suffered and died for the offense of those who have You see, if idolatry is seeking after God and doing it in our own form, our own glory and kind of making other things God at the centre of our life, that's man-made religion. That's idolatry. Well, the reason that's pointless is God has already done that move. He has already come to us. He has already pursued us. And he's done that in Jesus, who is the image of God. And Jesus gives us this God-shaped religion because it's the move from God to us. And so we don't need to make an image of God in an idol because we've already got the image of God in Jesus. We already have it. We don't need to make it. Importantly, it's to see, whilst idols will always disappoint, God alone will satisfy us. He pursues us and he satisfies us. So as idols leave us kind of chewing on ashes, if you like, Jesus satisfies like this rich feast of the finest foods. We have all we need uh, in him. We have full and complete salvation. Verse 23 says, uh, Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forest and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. You know, idolatry feeds off our discontentment. It feeds off our lack of security. It feeds off our identity confusion. It feeds off our joylessness. It feeds off our misplaced hope. It feeds off our doubts. These things that so often cause us to search for more and wondering if God is withholding his good things from us. So we go on the search elsewhere. It's impossible for idolatry to get hold of a heart that is overjoyed and delighting in God, a heart that is joyful and praising and content that is consumed and satisfied with Jesus. So where we see those longings in our lives, do you know what we're going to do? We're not just going to go looking for idols for, for these things. We're to take them to Jesus, because we do have those longings. We're to take them to Jesus, and idols fade away then. And we, be, we can become overjoyed in being his people. We know freedom from sin forgiven and forgotten. 
We know this God who is the first and last. We know that he is sovereign over all the days of our life. We know the joy of knowing him, the joy of knowing his people. And so we won't be taken in by like these, these cheap kind of knockoffs, these, these tacky imitations of what God offers. Idols are, are rubbish just because God is so good. So good. So as we close, the invitation of Isaiah 44 to us, it's there in verses 21 and 22, is to remember and return. Do you see those two words? Remember, return. Remember the futility of idols. Remember the salvation of Jesus and return to the God who has made us his. The God who has made us and who has saved us. You know, when we do that, we don't lose out. We don't lose our career or our children or our money or our relationships or our clothes or our possessions or our house or whatever else. Those things actually just, they become rightly ordered. And so in a sense, we actually gain them for the first time. They become the blessings from God to us that they are. And so we can enjoy them for what they are. They're no longer idols to us. I think so often we're scared that if we really take God at his word that we, we kind of lose all these things. But actually we gain them. For some, this, this remembering returning, it might just be the f- first time. This, this is the first time you've done that turn. And if it is so, I'd encourage you to make it where perhaps seen with greater clarity the futility and the worthlessness of what we self and live for and look for, the idols and things in life. And actually the beauty, the uniqueness of what Jesus offers to you. But for many of us, the truth is it's a return. We've, we've done it before and maybe many times before. None of what I've said is perhaps news to you. And yet it still cuts you to the heart because you may have been thinking of just this week where idols have kind of, you've grabbed hold of them in your heart and, and pursued the good life or salvation in them rather than Jesus. And you've been Christian for more than a week and you know that the same thing's coming again this week. The same trials and temptations. And so... What we want to do is we want to, we want to take hold of Jesus because in doing so we, we lose, uh, we kind of let go of idols. Together we, 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 we want to encourage one another to, to rightly kind of put Jesus in, in the supreme place in our hearts and lives. And so loosen the allure, the allure and hold on our hearts of idols to strengthen our satisfaction and joy in him. Knowing that we have all that we could ever want, we have all we need in him. Let me pray that we will uh, do that together. Father God, we praise you for, for uh, for this part of your word that we have looked at today and how it just peels back the layer, uh, layers of, of reality for us, shows us uh, things beneath the surface of life and the truth of them. Lord, where you have convicted us and made us aware and shown us the idols of our hearts and our lives, we pray that you will help us to turn away from them, to remember you and the great things you've done for us, to remember who you are, who Jesus is, and everything that we have in him. And as, as, as we return to you, return to Jesus, that, and take hold of everything that we have in you, that we would uh, once again let go of everything uh, that we so often hold to in our idols. Lord, please would, 
yeah, we just hold more firmly to you. Praise you that it's not about us holding on to you, but you hold on to us. You are the one who pursues us. You know we're idol worshippers, and yet, in Jesus, you come to us. We thank you for that. We thank you for all you give us. And we praise you. Amen.